You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, in for Kevin Cirilli, and joining me today, as always, is Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis, and later we're going to be talking to Congressman David Schweiker, who is also a member of the all-important House Ways and Means Committee, and today, Brian Sicknick, the officer who died from the January 6th riot, became the fifth person to lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda, the same room the rioters stormed earlier this month, almost a month ago, while In the Senate today, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and GOP Leader Mitch McConnell reached a power-sharing agreement. And on the House side, the House is trying to determine the fate of Republican freshman from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and trying to decide whether she should be removed from her committee assignments. Of course, Greene is an admitted member of QAnon, and she's become notorious for comments she made, including suggesting some school shootings were fabricated and calling for Nancy Pelosi's execution. Over the weekend, Mitch McConnell called her statements loony and a cancer on the party, and today, New York Democratic Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, one of many congresspeople calling for her removal from her committee assignments, said that House Minority Leader uh, McCarthy needs to make that happen. We have sound on that. Kevin McCarthy should handle this problem because Marjorie Taylor Greene is totally out of control. Joining me to make sense about all of this is Rick Davis, Bloomberg contributor, partner at Stone Court Capital, former campaign manager for John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, and Democratic strategist Louis Miranda, former DNC communications director and director of communications and politics at Alloy. So, Rick, let me ask you, can you take us inside the Republican caucus and tell us what is going on as it pertains to Marjorie Taylor Greene? Well, you can tell from public reporting that it's been a whirlwind of, uh, unfortunately for uh, uh, Leader McCarthy, uh, nonproductive activity. Um, uh, As we know, he's taken a totally different approach than uh, Leader McConnell took uh, earlier in the week where McConnell... Uh, uh, disparaged Green in a way that you would have thought uh, he was acting on behalf of the Democrats. Uh, And uh, McCarthy has been trying in the last 48 hours to find a solution that doesn't require a vote in the in the house to uh to pull her off these committees uh he's been met with a roadblock democratic leadership is not interested in a deal um uh, they want uh they want to use an example here and i think they are uh, certainly playing to the crowd right i mean there's it, i don't know anyone in the republican caucus who's standing up for uh marjorie taylor green and uh 
yet she's not relenting. She basically stiffed McCarthy, said that she wasn't going to step down and she wasn't going to apologize. So uh, without her cooperation, uh, McCarthy doesn't really have much to offer. And so the Democrats are going to move forward with a committee vote today and a floor vote tomorrow. And Lewis Miranda, I'm sorry if I pronounced your name incorrectly earlier. Lewis, I think I understand. <laughs> it's great to talk to you. Um, Thank what you. is what is your view about the Democrats taking a vote on this? There is a school of thought that this is a dangerous precedent for the Democrats to get involved in removing Republicans from committee positions. Do you share that view? I think it's certainly preferable if uh, McCarthy acts on this and um, this gets handled by Republicans, as they did with Steve King a couple of years ago after he defended uh, uh, white supremacist viewpoints. Uh, that would be the, the best thing for everyone, including for the Republican Party, because, uh, frankly, whether or not they get primary, whether or not they, they sort of continue to indulge in this civil war uh, of their own making, the, the, the reality is that they stand a better chance if they stand up to extremists now uh, rather than continuing to embolden them. And so uh, I do think it's, it's in everyone's best interest, including the Republican parties, for, for McCarthy to act himself. Um, that said, if he doesn't, if, if they're not able to, to come to an agreement, then uh, I think the House has little choice but to take uh, the vote um, on the uh, Washington Schultz bill that, uh, that Steny Hoyer is putting forward because um, at the end of the day, the Congress itself as an institution has to stand up uh, to this level of extremism because, uh, well, very much because of what you saw on January 6th on the Capitol, that, that kind of violence. Um, you know, Dick Gephardt used to, uh, when he was majority leader or minority leader uh, and, and you had new members of Congress coming in, he would tell them, don't forget that Congress is a substitute for war. It is the place where you come to debate uh, to to have deliberative uh, processes that uh, enable our democracy to function. And if you have people within the Congress that don't respect those basic values of democracy, uh, minority rights, and minority not in, in, in the terms of demographics, but uh, the political minority um, uh, and the, the respect for a process where everyone is able to have a debate without the threat of violence, uh, then you get into very dangerous territory. And so uh, I think the Congress for institutional uh, democratic purposes in, in the sense of democracy, not, not the Democratic Party, needs to hold Marjorie Taylor Greene accountable uh, to stand up to the kind of extremism that is dangerous to everyone. Yeah, Lewis is Rick. Uh, it, very good point. I think that that trying to establish a standard uh, that members of the House of Representatives are supposed to maintain, uh, even the framers of the Constitution had a hard time figuring that one out. Right? These are supposed to be the rabble of politics, and uh, and Marjorie Taylor Greene has set a new low. Right? And there's no arguing that no Republican is actually defending her. Um, what's odd is within our own party, it seems uh, Republicans are rather go after Lynn Cheney, part of leadership for voting for impeachment, than to really um, uh, take action against Marjorie Taylor Greene. But, but where is the limit there, right? I mean, where can you go? There'll be more investigations on what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. That'll keep this game alive. But it's not really a productive debate in the sense that it's going to result in a good COVID, you know, package of bills or something to do with um, uh, legislative efforts that are positive. So how much time does the leadership in the House really want to spend trying to set a standard that really has been pretty loose in the past for any member? 
And I agree with you on that. I think that the longer that McCarthy doesn't act on this, the longer that he enables and empowers things that we've seen out in the states with state Republican parties going after and censoring their own, whether it's uh, in, in Arizona um, or, or other states where they're, they're, they're literally attacking uh, Liz Cheney, Wyoming. Um, you know, they, they, they brought in a Florida member of Congress to attack her in Wyoming uh, instead of um, really trying to draw the line within their states for, for that kind of balance. And, and uh, again, I think that the danger here is that if, if you do empower and embolden the extremists, they are going to primary. Uh, they may win, and they actually may make it harder for Republicans to hold seats that should be theirs in, in, in the midterm election. But uh, I agree with you. I think both sides of the House, uh, both in terms of the Senate and the House, as well as Republican and Democrat alike, should want to be able to send a message, send it strongly and send it quickly so that they can focus on, on other issues. It, it's such an important point. I think one of the things we always tell students is that Congress, one of the rare things the U.S. Congress has in their control and power is that they hold responsible their members. And that means they can remove them, they can censor them, censure them, they can remove them from committees. So Rick Davis, some people have asked me, is removing Marjorie Taylor Greene from an education committee enough? Should Congress take the steps to remove her from Congress altogether? What is your view on that? I, I think that we're going to see uh, in the very near future in the House of Representatives more information coming forward on investigations that are concurrent with this debate on Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, related to the overall attack on the Capitol. Uh, were members of Congress themselves uh, complicit in helping and aid and abet the rioters to gain access to the Capitol? Uh, were they involved in the planning process uh, for this? And did they understand or know or have prior knowledge of the plans that the rioters have and didn't tell the proper authorities within the House of representatives, um, whether it's the Capitol Police or, or other law enforcement that's there in the Capitol. And, and, and the, the Marjorie Taylor Greene issue is going to come right back up because it's, it's, it's linked to that entire riot process or relationship with the QAnon protesters who were inside the Capitol. Uh, so uh, unless she's removed from Congress uh, or, or removes herself or the Congress removes her, she's going to be right back in the headlines in a very near term. Yeah. And, and, and Lewis, Rick raises such an important point. If they don't remove her, and, and it doesn't seem to me, at least, um, that they are looking at that at this point, she is going to be, as Mitch McConnell described, a cancer on this party, and, and it will keep rearing it, it, the head of this issue. Do you think there is any steps to remove her at this point? Any any thought on that? Uh, I'm not sure what, what, what the right decision is there, because uh, ultimately she is a representative of her district. And... Um, it, it, it may take uh, her own voters to, to, to do that. Um, however, I think it's something that the House definitely has to consider, particularly, as Rick said, as more information emerges about whether or not some of these members of Congress were actually involved in helping uh, plot out the, the, the January 6th riots um, and put the lives of their fellow members of Congress in jeopardy. Um, the extent to which we, we find out more details on that may affect that. I think if, if, if enough information comes out corroborating that kind of scenario, um, then I think it's definitely incumbent on the House to at least consider uh, ousting her uh, or, and, and, or any others who may have been uh, more directly involved. I think that um, at the end of the day, what 
you also need from leadership in both sides is to have a some sort of process um and, you know not, not that there could be a truth commission of sorts but some sort of process really to arrive at at some level of of agreement on refuting um some major lies the lie that the perpetuates um not just the election but but some of the other you know underpinnings that that help keep QAnon going those need to be addressed like there needs to be consensus that there's certain things that are truth and certain things that are lies and it and, doesn't matter which party you're at and and lewis we are going to see if they get anywhere near a truth commission of sorts um we're going to talk about that and so much more including where lawmakers are on covid relief this is sound on on bloomberg radio Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano in for Kevin Cirilli and here talking with Rick Davis and Louis Miranda. We've been talking about how hot things are in the House as they debate the future of Representative Taylor Greene. And I'm reminded of what George Washington said to Thomas Jefferson. We pour legislation into the senatorial saucer to cool it. So let's go over to the Senate side and see how they are doing. We know they reached a power sharing agreement today, which is good news. But as Rick was saying, they still are debating about the COVID relief package. President Biden and Democrats say any relief package needs to be large. After a meeting at the White House today, Chuck Schumer told reporters that lawmakers can't delay any further because they have a lot on their plate. And we have sound on that. We had a long, serious, substantive meeting where we discussed many of the details of the bill that we have to put together over the next few weeks. And despite the protestations of Republicans who say President Biden wants everything his way, he is unwilling to negotiate on COVID relief. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki reiterated at the White House press briefing this afternoon that the president's door is still wide open for discussion. We have sound on that. There is agreement uh, that it's important to work with many Republicans and Democrats who fall on different uh, different parts of the political spectrum to put their ideas forward and consider them. And that's part of the conversation and part of the process now happening on the Hill. So, Rick Davis, because we know the Senate is the place where things get cooled down, I'm saying that facetiously, I think, is Biden open for debate? And do Republicans believe he is or is he going to go big on this? 
I don't know, Jeannie. I mean, I think in this case, after what we just said about the House, uh, the Senate has to be cooler. <laughs> but, <laughs> Good point. Uh, but look, I think that uh, uh, Majority Leader Schumer, we can call him that now, uh, and, and the White House are doing a great good cop, bad cop routine. Schumer say, hey, we got to move fast. We got to get this done. The American people are dependent upon this relief package uh, in the midst of a horrible pandemic. And Joe Biden's operation is doors wide open. Republicans should come. There are a lot of things we can agree upon. We want to keep this door open. They said that they would they they were confident that they would pass a stimulus bill with Republican support. And and the two of those things could both be true. Right. They could move fast. They're right in the middle of the budget cycle right now. Uh, there'll be a, a vote on Thursday on the budget in the in the Senate. And and and, and deals are going to start getting cut. I, I would say part of what we're now seeing is how the public's weighing in on this. And, you know, the signature item in the Biden package, these $1,400 checks, are immensely popular even amongst Republicans. 64% in a Quinnipiac poll said they wanted the 1400 not the 1000 And so I think it's it, it, right now, advantage Biden. He's he's getting public support and, and seems to have a Senate with uh, with a leader who wants to push hard. And it's such an important point about where the public stands on this. And and Louis Miranda, l- let me ask you, one of the things that we've heard from Republicans is we passed a bill right after Christmas. Much of that money hasn't even gone out the door yet. And you're talking about two trillion dollars. Do they have a point on that? Well, some of that money and some of the complaint has been about money that wasn't spent on vaccines because there was no vaccine ready. I mean, the, the vaccine has been um, available for such a short amount of time. It's it's, it's, it's hard to uh, it's incredible how things happen these days. And and it's hard to reflect on how little time has actually passed. So um, quite the opposite. I think what what is evident today is that we need to continue to get ahead of uh, whether it's, it's proper funding to be able to help states and localities administer the vaccines as more production uh, arrives, that we help them and, and make sure that there's a coordinated plan so that those vaccines are actually finding the arms of, of enough people. Um, and, and that you're addressing all of this at the same time because the, the virus is in waiting. I mean, we have uh, incredibly high risk all across the country right now of transmission. You have new strains emerging. So the idea that we should wait until some of the money from the past bill has been spent just sort of misses the urgency of what's going on. And Rick Davis, as somebody who's worked so long in, in, in Republican circles and campaigns and elections, is there still an appetite in the Republican circles for, to, for concern about the debt and deficit? Or has that just gone totally off? Of, there was a time we were thinking about amendments in that regard. Anything in the offing on that for Republicans? Well, I think we're in this era right now, and it's been that way for probably close to 15 years, that um, when you're not in power, you care about the deficit. When you are in power, you don't care about the deficit. <laughs> and and that is the case with the Republicans now. Four years, uh, in the last four years, they haven't cared at all about the deficit. And that's before the the pandemic hit the world. And so now, all of a sudden, they start worrying about, um, you know, spending a lot of money and uh, running up the, the federal uh, debt. So... Um, I do think that Lewis makes a very good point on on turning this away from things like spending and on to we got to conquer uh, the pandemic. And it's not so much about the checks. It's really now about uh, vaccinations. And I think if the administration really put vaccinations up front more so than these checks, I think they would get more Republican votes.
And Rick Davis, as usual, you just taught me something. It's not a commitment on either party's side. It's about where they sit in terms of power that determines what they think about big issues like the deficit. So <laughs> I continue to learn from you on this stuff. Um, we want to also focus a bit on the story that continues to be so much in the news on what's going on with GameStop. So we're going to turn our attention to that. Rick and Lewis are staying with me. I'm Jeannie Shanzano in for Kevin Cirilli. And this is Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Jeannie Shanzano in for Kevin Cirilli with Rick Davis and Louis Miranda talking about the continuing saga of the Reddit GameStop revolution. And earlier today, Representative Patrick McHenry, ranking member of the House Financial Services Committee, told Bloomberg's David Weston that he wants to probe if regulations were broken over GameStop, but says more regulation would be a mistake. The committee will hold a hearing regarding recent market market volatility, excuse me, involving GameStop and other companies starting on February 18th. We have sound on that. What I think is important about a hearing like this is understand whether current regulations and laws were 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 broken. Technology innovation is the way forward. We have to embrace it. You can't put it back in the box. The idea that you're going to stop Reddit that's been around for quite a while uh, is kind of absurd. So, I, you know, I think we've got a lot of work to do uh, here as a committee to understand the nature of this thing. And that was Representative McHenry speaking to David Weston on balance of power earlier today. So, Louis Miranda, let me ask you, is more regulation a mistake? I think the problem is that there's a lot of fundamental misinformation um, about what's actually happening and how this entire GameStop um, dynamic played out. Um, and who was involved? Look, there's there's a news report I saw earlier today that there may be significant bot activity on this Reddit um, board uh, that that certainly needs scrutiny. Like, you know, I think it's it really is important for for there to be an understanding of of what took place and and where some of the um, uh, energy came from. Um, but that I think is still missing. I mean, for example, Robinhood didn't stop trading because they were trying to thwart some sort of populist revolution. They stopped trading because they ran out of money and needed to go out and raise billions of dollars to be able to cover uh, the trades. And so um, I think part of this needs to be taking a step back and understanding um, what the dynamics actually were and then uh, figuring out where you can plug holes. But at the end of the day, day traders are still going to traditionally not do as well as the big investors uh, in, in, in the overall. And big firms like BlackRock have made out really well during this, this whole episode. Um, so, so this is not a, a simple, you know, populist uh, against big hedge funds kind of story. There's, there's a lot of dynamics here that need to be more closely looked at before jumping to any conclusions. Yeah, Lewis, I think it, it is worth exploring though, right? I mean, uh, the SEC is going to look into this. They're, they're, sifting through social media accounts to see what kind of coordination was happening. Was it manipulation? That would be a violation of the rules. So, I mean, I think the regulators are going to figure this out. But but when was the last time you heard a, uh, you know, a chat room 
around stocks that would accumulate 3 million people, you know, as part of the group within uh, a two or three week period. I mean, you've, you've been building coalitions for Democrats. How'd you like to have 3 million extra people show up on one of your sites like overnight? I mean, it, that is a phenomenon on its own, isn't it? It is. And I think that's one of the challenges is that we live in a different climate than we're used to. And we're going to have to get used to it, that there are people participating and able to participate uh, whether it's in a level like this, whether it's in uh, the kind of level that has fueled QAnon, for example, um, that a lot of people still don't understand. And, and so the reckoning, I think, ends up coming down to um, getting a better handle, whether regulators or lawmakers or general society, on uh, how technology actually is functioning, what these new means of communication and, and people's ability to participate uh, actually mean, whether it's for the spread of, of, you know, there were people still protesting Comet Pizza up here <laughs> because of the Pizzagate stuff uh, tied to QAnon that we were talking in the first segment. And that's not entirely unrelated to what happened with the Redditors. And, and I think that the fundamental problem is that Washington, uh, both in terms of regulators and lawmakers, has not caught up to how to actually deal with big tech and how to understand it. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you so much on that, Lewis. It, it, it's we have so much work to do in the public sector on catching up to what's been going on with tech. So we want to thank Democratic strategist Lewis Miranda, former DNC communication director and director of communication and politics at Alloy. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you both. February is Black History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is celebrating this pivotal moment in U.S. history throughout the month. And here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in Black history in 1870, the 15th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States was ratified. This guaranteed the right to vote regardless of race. It also intended to ensure with the 14th Amendment the civil rights of former slaves. But many black people would not actually be able to practice this right to vote until the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It gave African-Americans a way to get around barriers at the state and local levels that had previously prevented them from exercising the right to vote. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And Rick Davis, I want to throw this back to you because it's such an important thing, to, particularly today, as we talk about all of the challenges with voting, is have we realized yet today all the promise of the 15th Amendment? No, I don't think we have. And I think it's a wonderful moment, uh, especially considering all the um, the, the, the racial disparity that we've seen rise up uh, through movements like Black Lives Matters and others, uh, uh, to have this conversation now. I mean, it, you couldn't get a, a better time to say that we need to start engaging as Americans to say, what have we been doing wrong? How to change the system to make it fair? Uh, we have seen a lot of, um, of that conversation, but it, it needs to be more productive. Uh, we can't solve everything by going to the streets. Uh, we need to have office holders, educators, employers, everybody look at this from their perspective and say, you know, have we really been paying attention to this, 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 this conversation? I couldn't agree with you more. It's such an important conversation to have, particularly now. It's always an important conversation to have, but particularly now, as this has been such a challenging time when it comes to voting and elections. So um, really important. Thank you, Rick. And coming up next, Rick and I are going to speak with Congressman 
David Schweiker, Republican from Arizona's 6th District. He not only serves on the House Ways and Means Committee, but he also is a co-chair of the Blockchain Caucus, and he has a front row seat in the most important room, I guess, in Washington, D.C. today, which is this Republican conference deciding the fate of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Liz Cheney. This is Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, in for Kevin Cirilli. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, in for Kevin Cirilli today. Along with me is my colleague Rick Davis. And joining us now, we're very pleased to welcome Representative David Schweiker, Republican from Arizona's 6th District. He's serving in his fifth term in Congress, and he sits on the all-important Ways and Means Committee. So, Congressman Schweiker, <laughs> thank hey, you. Thank you for hi- having me. And and say hi to Mr. Davis. Um, only he would never remember me because but many years ago, I followed him around a bit when he was in Arizona. So, I think he's right here, Rick. I know he remembers Congressman you. Schweiker. I could never forget <laughs> you, believe me. And uh, I look forward to yeah, chatting with you. Annoying. Thank you so much for being on the program. <laughs> <laughs> so, Congressman oh. Schweiker, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And wanted to ask you um, just a really, really thirty thousand foot question on this COVID relief bill. Are we going to see a deal? And if so, how much do you think we will see? come off from that one, 1. 1.9, almost $2 trillion. It's You're asking a brilliant question, but the box I'm seeing it move in, and I just got off the floor managing, I, I'm the senior Republican in something called the Joint Economic Committee. So we do the economic projections for a bill like this. And what's actually moving right now is, uh, the best example is you've all seen the concept of a blank check company where here's our company shell, here's how much money we put into it, but we're going to tell you what we're really going to spend it on later. That's actually what's happening. That's what the budget resolution document that's moving right now. It's a $1.9 trillion spending box. And because they're doing it as a budget document, it can move through the House with a simple majority and then through the Senate with a simple majority. And then you sort of bring it back in and fill out the details. And that's actually where the rub is. It, will the details actually be $1.9 trillion, 
or will we do something much more targeted and hopefully much more effective? Um, remember, there's still a trillion dollars of authorized cash sitting in accounts right now to go out the door to help you know, small businesses, to help PPP loans, to help schools. To, you know, it's, there's still a trillion dollars that hasn't made it out the door yet. Representative Schweiker, Rick here. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. It's been a long time. And uh, obviously a pretty tumultuous period uh, in January in the House of Representatives. Hopefully we can pivot into more constructive uh, activity uh, here in, uh, God, in February. I, so. <laughs> um, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the economic ramifications of this COVID crisis, because, I mean, we've spent a lot of this program talking about the Biden administration's effort to get vaccines out to people. I think everybody wants to do whatever they can to improve that and move it along quicker. Uh, We've talked a little bit about the stimulus checks, you know, and where we are with with some of the the debate around $1,000 at the the Republicans want and $1,400 that, uh, mm-hmm. that the Biden administration has re- recommended. But I'm kind of curious more on the macro economy of the United States and what is happening in Congress right now to take advantage of what seems to be a little bit of a rebound based on hopefully uh, fewer numbers on COVID uh, uh, going around the country. And so uh, is, is, is there something happening that we're missing in this debate on v- vaccines and the virus and testing? that we're not paying attention to on the economy? You're asking a brilliant question, and I'm not flattering you. Flattery Uh, is a good thing, though. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and we're in the political business, so that's part of our profession. But the reality of it is, how do I get our brothers and sisters in the policymaking world to to think beyond just um, the COVID bludgeoning that we've seen in our society and try to also think through what will the economy look like this year, or next year, the year after that. Um, And my simple example is, look at the remarkable numbers of new micro-businesses and small businesses being started, new LLC filings, new businesses starting in back bedrooms or, you know, the empty neighborhood office space. There's something going on in our society where a lot of folks who've been pretty roughed up this last year are taking new risks. Would we maximize the, the economic change, the sort of economic disruption that the, some of the new business models can take us to if we find ways to provide them access to capital or a more streamlined way to get permitting and licensing and access to markets? And, and that's one of the arguments we're trying to make from Ways and Means and Joint Economic Committee is, yes, we need to deal with the here and now, but are we designing sort of the, the, the launch pad, the takeoff of what could be the economy in the future? Because the reality of it is I think the 2021, 2022, and the years after that are going to hopefully be positive but look different than 2019. People working from home, the, the value of office space, um, the Internet economy, the use of telemedicine. Think of the things we know right now are, are, are where there's a vacuum or opportunity or that are actually working, and how do we build upon them? And that's the void in any of the economic um, policy discussions going on right now is we're dancing around the politics and, and theories of the moment instead of future-proofing our policies. 
You know, you raise a really important point, uh, Congressman, about the um, the development of and filings of new businesses in America. I mean, even at the uh, height of the crisis in the uh, fourth quarter of last year, we saw record development of new new small businesses. Uh, as you point out, these LLCs and other companies that are being formed. Um, so, so somebody is saying something that um, the media isn't reporting. Uh, very much of. Uh, um, and, and I'm curious, especially, you know, you've got a, a perch on the Ways and Means Committee. Maybe maybe you see things um, uh, that, that aren't readily available to, to the rest of us. But um, what, what is that phenomenon? I mean, could you drill down a little bit on that? Because the reality is, um, uh, is, is there a spark for the future? Are we going to wake up someday when the vaccines take hold and find out that there have been a lot of people developing a new economy? You're, that's exactly where my head is at. And you, we always have to be careful not to make policy by storytelling. You know, we heard a story, that's we're going to chase policy. But there really are some interesting underlying numbers saying, I had a this type of business, we were crushed by the shutdowns, but we figured out how to migrate to doing selling our product online or doing neighborhood deliveries. Um, and some simple examples I'll give you is look at some of the interesting investments happening in urban areas of ghost kitchens. And, and that may not be the proper term, but it's a kitchen with multiple menus purely for delivery. Um, look at some of the resources being given to folks who are operating businesses from their home or home offices. We, we thought these sorts of things were coming, but it's the punctuation, the suddenness because of COVID, um, telemedicine is one of the ones I'm most fascinated with. It was very controversial a year ago. You know, it wasn't going to work. Seniors won't adopt it. COVID hit. Um, a piece of legislation I have to expand telemedicine access became law. It has The adoption has been remarkable. Turns out seniors actually know how to work their phones and love it. Satisfaction. And now we're actually even seeing some price efficiencies coming from it. That was probably not going to happen for several years, and it happened in several months. What does that make the economy look like in the future? And those are the things, if you're entrepreneurial, where's the disruption and how do we chase it? Yeah, and Representative Schweiker, we could talk to you all. So many questions to ask you. One thing I wanted to follow up on as you talk about these, something you've been so passionate about, these technological innovations as solutions to government regulation. Have you gotten any positive feedback or conversations started with the Biden administration? Granted, it's still early, but in that arena, and we mentioned you are co-chair of the Blockchain Caucus. Um, yes, uh, it's, and I believe, I genuinely believe, outside even cryptocurrencies, blockchain could solve everything from voting disputes to, you know, tracking um, energy distribution. I, I'm a huge believer in distributive ledgers. Um, I, I, at a personal level, I'm hopeful, but I'm concerned. A couple of the key places where disruptive innovation that would help the working poor, but also help economic growth. Some of the individuals who look like they're up for appointments don't appear to be the most forward-looking individuals. They almost seem to be bringing policy sets from previous decades. Um, and, and that's always a concern in policymaking of, as technology gives us some of these amazing opportunities in healthcare and environment, you need to be willing to populate 
um, the bureaucracies with people who embraced those disruptions in technology. And in many ways, we're going back to the old hands of a much more um, bureaucratic model. Yeah, Representative Schweiker, we can just ask you so many things we had on deck to ask you. So hopefully you will come back um, when Kevin Cirilli is back in the chair. (laughs) I know he loves to talk to you. Um, And so thank you so much for joining us. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, and I want to just reiterate that Kevin Cirilli, you will be happy to know, is back tomorrow, and he is going to be speaking with Senator Marsha Blackburn. Um, and I want to thank again Representative Schweiker, Arizona's 6th District, Democratic strategist Louis Miranda, and of course Rick Davis, Bloomberg contributor, um, partner at Stonecourt Capital, and manager of John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. It has been such a pleasure to fill in for Kevin. I am thrilled he's coming back tomorrow, rested and ready to take back this seat. And I hope you will listen to Sound On at 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio tomorrow as we welcome him back. Thank you so much. I'm Jeannie Shanzano in for Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.